Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, our topic is lobbying and legislative networks. And before we get right into our topic, I'm going to ask our guest to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Jennifer Nichol Victor. I am Associate Professor of Political Science in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to get right into our first question. Um, well, let's talk about uh, lobbying. What Personally, before I was in college, where I kind of learned a little bit more about lobbyists, I had no idea what a lobbyist was. I mean, I, I from what I understood, I kind of had a not a negative viewpoint, but something sort of along the lines of like like a salesman. You know, like salesmen mm -hmm. aren't inherently negative, but there's just that kind of like apprehension that is there. So, can you give us a, a general definition of a lobbyist? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the sort of conventional wisdom about what lobbyists are is something a little bit untoward or, or almost corrupt or unfair. It does have a negative connotation, I think, to it. Um, but honestly, I think I think that's unfair. I think that uh, lobbying provides a really vital role in the way the United States government operates. So what a lobbyist is, is essentially an advocate. It's essentially somebody who is hired um, either as a one-on-one -on -one consultant or by an organization or, or whatnot um, to advocate for something towards, and they may advocate to at Congress or in a state legislature or at federal bureaucracies or all sorts of venues. Um, and in the way that legislative politic, politics works, particularly in the U.S. Congress, is you've got these members of Congress who are asked to act and to know about everything, essentially, every single problem in the world and to make decisions about it. And of course, they can't hold all of that expertise in their head. Um, and Congress does give them a lot of resources to manage that. They have professional staff and the Library of Congress and the Congressional Research Service and all of these other institutions that are fantastic and wildly resourced and um, you know super professional. Um, but they also, frankly, can't do everything. And so lobbyists fill in those gaps. Lobbyists um, are are, uh, professionals and experts in their fields who sort of know what's going on on the ground in any policy area. So if Congress is getting ready to make a new proposed bill about sugar or roads or cows or whatever it is, um, the people who are engaged in those industries will send their lobbyists and say, here's what's up, here's what's going on, here's how this proposal would affect our industry, et cetera. Um, so when I talk with lobbying about to, with students, I often try to tell it as sort of a good news, bad news story. So on the bad news side, sort of to your original question, um, lobbying does present an opportunity for um, almost an unfairness, right? So if, if the cows have their own lobbyists, um, where, you know, what about the anti-cows? What about the people who, you know, don't get anything from cows? Um, so essentially lobbying creates an unequal playing field and the industries or the interests out there who have more resources, who have an easier time organizing themselves, wind up getting more advocacy because they hire more lobbyists than those who have fewer resources or, or, or less means to do 
that kind of thing. Um, so it, on, on the good news side, it's, it's just representation, it's advocacy, it's information. It, it tends to be very high quality information um, because as a lobbyist, the main thing you care about is your relationships. And as soon as you start telling lies or presenting misinformation, you're cut off. Like nobody wants to have a relationship with you anymore. So the, the information exchange tends to be very high quality. And all of that is really good for policymaking. Um, it's just that it's, it's not balanced. Um, I think it's the way to think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and again, for people who, you know, maybe knowing what being a lobbyist or lobbying is, is kind of a stretch for them. Is there an example of a lobbyist or someone who's kind of been a big deal in that that scope that you could give an example of to kind of make it a little more of a in touch with reality for some people who really don't know what this is? So unfortunately, I think the lobbyists who get their, their names in the news tend to be those that come under scrutiny for untoward purposes um, or who have gone to jail or broken the law or whatnot. Um, and so that may also contribute to sort of the bad reputation that lobbyists have. Um, I don't want to give any, any like specific names of friends or whatnot or people that I know in the industry just because, you know, I, I, I don't want to sort of out anybody um, in that sense. But, you know, there are lobbyists in essentially every industry that you can think of. Lobbyists are essentially experts. They're policy area experts in whatever their little narrow slice of the world is. Um, and often, you know, so a student sometimes will ask me, well, I want to be a lobbyist. How do I make that happen? And you don't graduate, you don't get a degree in lobbying. <laughs> you don't go to training school for lobbying. You don't just go from college to getting a lobbying job or something like that. You become a lobbyist because you're an expert in something, because you know a lot about how a problem works or how an industry operates, or you have a lot of on the ground experience in working in a particular field. Um, and once you have both, so lobbying is essentially at the end of the day about two things. It's about information and relationships. So once you've built enough of a career or a set of experiences for yourself where you have a lot of information and you have developed a lot of good relationships with stakeholders and principals and players and whoever, um, then you're in a position actually to be an effective lobbyist uh, because you can use those two assets in all of your activities where you're advocating or, or, you know, lobbyists are sort of educators at the end of the day. They go to members of Congress offices, they meet with the staff or sometimes the members themselves, and they explain how stuff works in their field. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like being a, a, a teacher or like sort of a constant public presenter in that sense. And they often have to take volumes of information. Sometimes it's very technical information and distill it down to the, you know, 24 year old staffers that they're explaining it to or whatever it is. Um, so it, it's a it's a complex job that requires a, a, a particular skill set, um, but it's one that's really rewarding for a, a lot of people who are engaged in the industry. Mm -hmm. And when it when it comes to lobbying itself, um, I, I think it's a vital part of our democracy, again, because they are sort of educators and they can they can add information to, to policies and, and um, kind of guide maybe legislators who who are on one side and, and they can hear the other argument for um, like a certain policy or piece of legislation that that's being presented. Um, but when it comes to funding, do lobbyists in any way fund? Congress, mem uh, Congress members or, um, or any sort of campaigns or anything like that? So I do think it's important to distinguish lobbying from campaign contributions because they really are two separate activities that, that go on. Um, that being said, they're not wholly unrelated activities. And uh, one of the ways in which lobbyists get sort of a, a bad rap 
um, or a negative reputation is the idea that lobbyists are engaged in a, like a pay for play kind of situation, that there's a favoritism that goes on where for whatever reason, whether it's because of a campaign contribution or a historical friendship or whatever it is, a lobbyist may be so cozy with a legislator that that legislator provides more favor in terms of attention or legislation or whatever it is than they would have in the absence of that relationship or contribution. Um, and so that's a fair, that's a totally fair critique. And that is the type of critique that, uh, you know, we have some regulations set up that are, are supposed to try to prevent that type of favoritism from getting out of hand. Um, but, you know, those regulations aren't perfect. Um, and there, there is some of that that goes on. Um, so some lobbyists, and, and it's probably fair to say most lobbyists do get involved with campaign contributions. Um, but, you know, for two reasons. One, lobbying tends to be paid really well, right? So if you're a lobbyist, you're essentially paid for the set of expert information that you have and for the set of relationships that you have. Um, those are very valuable resources in the policymaking game. And so, you know, good lobbyists tend to earn a pretty good salary. Um, and if you make a good salary, then you've got extra disposable income. And if you're engaged in politics and policymaking, what do you do with some of your disposable income? Well, lots of people will use that to support their, you know, preferred political candidates. Now, um, so some research that uh, Greg Coger, a colleague of mine at the University of Miami, and I did a number of years ago, we looked at campaign contributions that lobbyists themselves make. So when we think of campaign contributions, usually those are coming from individuals who aren't lobbyists, like just individuals, whether they're wealthy or not, it's just regular people. And then you've got PACs and super PACs and all this other kind of stuff. And all of that is really a whole separate world of campaign finance. Um, whereas lobbying is about advocacy, but those individual lobbyists also sometimes get involved in the campaign contributions. And so in this work that uh, Greg Coker and I did, we looked at whether or not the distribution of those campaign contributions that were coming from individual lobbyists looked like the types of contributions that we saw from the rest of the world of campaign finance. Um, so if you, if you think about PACs, for example, lots of corporations and businesses and interest groups have what are called political action committees whose purpose, whose sole purpose in life is to raise money and give it to candidates. Like they're just campaign finance little engines. Um, they, don't, they don't advocate, they just raise and give money. And a lot of the business PACs, um, and most PACs are business PACs, um, a lot of them will give to both Republicans and Democrats because they care less generally about who wins than they care that they have given to the winning side. <laughs> like it's important to them that they've given money to the winner because they see that campaign contribution as potentially opening a door of access for communication or meetings or whatnot. And they wanna make sure they have that access. And so they tend to not be that ideological. And so Greg and I thought, well, are the lobbyists operating the same way? Are the lobbyists also giving to both sides for the purpose of having relationships that could open doors regardless of who wins? And it turns out not so much. It turns out in the individual lobbying campaign contributions, we found that most lobbyists are partisans and they give campaign contributions like you would expect partisans to. So lobbyists who have more relationships with Democrats are giving to more Democratic candidates and lobbyists who have more relationships with Republicans are giving more to Republican candidates. And there's some in the middle, but it's it's sort of a, I would call it like a bimodal distribution um, that looks very much like a like a partisan distribution and the way that i think about this is that in a place like washington dc politics is about relationships 
And the way that you value one another, the way that you show somebody in DC that they are valuable to you um, or that you have worth is by, people are measured by the types of relationships they have. So you, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna date myself a little bit here, but back when people used telephones um, and they needed to know phone numbers, they had these Rolodexes that would sit on their desks that were just you know lists of phone numbers of the people that they knew. And you could essentially measure somebody's worth in Washington DC by who was in their Rolodex. Like if I could, if I had the Speaker of the House's phone number, or if I could dial up the White House Chief of Staff and know that they would answer my call, that made me an important person. And so I think of relationships like currency in Washington, D.C. And, um, and we can measure to some extent how powerful people are by the set of relationships that they have. And campaign contributions are essentially one of many, but one way to both establish and maintain those relationships. So if you're a Republican lobbyist and you're trying to raise your profile and establish more relationships, what are you gonna do? You're gonna give money to your friends who are running for office. You're gonna give money to the candidates that are the people that you want to have those relationships with, have in your Rolodex or, or your contact list or whatever. Um, and so really the, the reason I think that people are making, like the lobbyists are making the campaign donations is not so much to gain favor um, in, in that untoward kind of um, pay for play or quid pro quo way, but it's just a way of supporting your friends. It's a way of, of creating and maintaining existing relationships in a way that is just how politics operates. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, I want to move into caucuses and how they play a role in this, you know, so what are they and how do they work for those who don't know? Yeah, so I've been studying congressional caucuses uh, for a long time. They're a bit of a hobby horse of mine. Um, I think they're really fascinating. So basically, caucuses are little congressional clubs. <laughs> like if you, when you're in high school and there were all these clubs you could join, like members of Congress have clubs, essentially. So um, in the 117th Congress, which is the current Congress they're in right now, there are upwards of 700 caucuses. Um, that are operational. So there are hundreds of these things, and there are actually more every year. So back in the early 90s, there was like one or 200 caucuses, and it's just been going up ever since then. Um, and most caucuses are truly bipartisan. So upwards of 80% of caucuses have Republican and Democratic members of them. They will typically have a Republican and Democratic co-chair that lead the caucus together. Um, and that bipartisan nature of those groups is really important to the groups to the extent where, like, let's say a Republican co-chair retires, um, the caucus may sort of go dormant for a little while until they can replace it with another Republican leader so that it doesn't look like a Democratic group. Um, because they want all members of Congress to feel like it's a place that they can come to talk about whatever the topic of the caucus is. Um, and caucuses really range in the topics that they address. So, you know, there's a there's a sugar beet caucus and a corn caucus and a bike caucus and a, you know, roads caucus and a wine caucus. And I mean, you name it an industry, a region of the world, an interest, a hobby, like there's a boating caucus, like you name it, there's probably a caucus for it in Congress. Um, and advocacy areas, you know, like the, the disease caucuses tend to be really big, like the diabetes caucus and the Alzheimer's caucus and the Parkinson's caucus. Um, the fireman's caucus or fire services caucus uh, is, a, is a really large one as well. Um, so they're just, you know, sort of constituent oriented groups 
surrounding a policy area or, or topic of concern um, that members of Congress can join. And a member of Congress is totally voluntary, join or not join, um, it's sort of totally unlimited. So it's not like with congressional committees, you can only be on so many committees and it's assigned to you. Um, or parties, like you're in your party group, you don't go to the other party group, right? You're, you're a Republican or a Democrat and that's it. And caucuses are this much more freewheeling thing. Um, and to a lot of folks, I think because they're, and, and some of them are, are kind of like silly sounding, you know, like there's the beer wholesalers caucus, or, or some of them are really obscure, you know, like there's a Syrian Jewry caucus. Um, and, and so some people will look at that and go, these are very obscure or very niche or, or trivial or something like that. And so this is just members of Congress posturing and signaling, and this is totally meaningless. And I completely get that, that take on caucuses. And there is definitely some truth in that. And there is some posturing, I think, that goes on with caucuses. However, in my work, to me, the fact that they are so low cost and so easygoing and members join so many of them um, that altogether it winds up creating this really dense network of relationships between members of Congress. So what I've done in my research is I've taken the, the memberships, all the individual memberships of the caucuses and said any two members of Congress who both are in the same caucus have a connection. You know, maybe they never attended a meeting together. Maybe they just send their interns or whatever, but they're on the same listserv. They're getting the same emails. Like it's some kind of a connection. Um, and if we add up this, all of those connections, then we can understand members of Congress in this networked way through these common expressed preferences through caucuses. And that becomes something really insightful, a, a different way to understand the way members of Congress relate to one another and the things that they engage on um, that provide us uh, all sorts of insights about how Congress works. Mm -hmm. when, it, when it comes to the one caucus that kind of comes to the, to the top of my mind is like the Hispanic caucus. Um, mm -hmm. I think that I don't, I don't know if there's like a bigger name for it, but that's just the one I'm familiar with. Yep. Um, do these clubs, congressional clubs kind of mm, like deflate the tension that can sometimes be between members of different parties and, and because it's, they're, they're not as um, like publicly advertised as like, like, like let's say um, a committee. Um, yep. Does it does it kind of like take the pressure off people who are on both sides of parties to come together and, and talk, or is there still kind of like that tension between both both aisles? I love your question. So I I just wrote a paper on essentially exactly that question, <laughs> where I studied that um, because I had the same instincts that you do. These things, most of these things are bipartisan and they're very low key, and maybe it takes the pressure off. Um, and the, the the short answer to the question is. Yes, it can, and yes, it does in some instances, um, but it does it in such small amounts that it, it, the extent to which the relationships that get made through this vast bipartisan caucus system, um, they do help deflate some of that polarization, some of that um, siloing that goes on between Republicans and Democrats, but it doesn't do it so much so that it overcomes the very strong forces of polarization that we have baked in through our parties and committees and electoral politics and so forth. So, so it, it makes a difference, but it doesn't make like enough of a difference to sort of cure Congress. If that, I think that's the way to think about it. Cure Congress, yeah. <laughs> And I do want to go ahead and start talking about the article that you wrote, um, your, your findings from the article. You wrote an article called Financing Friends, How Lobbyists Create a Web of Relationships Among Members of Congress. Now, how do they go about doing that? And what were your findings in, in this article and your research? 
Oh yeah, so that uh, that article you're picking up on is actually the one that I was mentioning uh, before that Greg Coger and I wrote. So mm -hmm. essentially, the idea there was he and I he and I think of of lobbying relate the relationships that lobbyists have with members of Congress as being primarily about relationships, not about transactions, right? Mm -hmm. So an economist would look at that campaign contribution and go, "That's a transaction. Somebody's." giving money to somebody else in exchange for a product or for a favor or something like that. And that's a very common way to think about those types of exchanges. But our view is a little bit different. Our view is that in politics, the, the um, utility of an exchange like that isn't so much about what I'm giving and what I'm getting in return, but it's about the longevity of the connection that is made and whether or not, you know, I can, I can tap that well again, or I can go back to you for a future problem that I have or whatever it is, the value is in the connection and the relationship that may last across time and have some future benefit um, to the players. And Washington is such an interesting place because there are, you know, like I've known lobbyists who have been involved in politics for so long, they, you know, they have strong friendships with particular staffers on the Hill who've been staffers for a long time and they've been in industry or maybe they've been on the Hill themselves or they've gone back and forth. Um, there's a lot of that kind of revolving door kind of thing that goes on. Uh, and at, at some point, it's impossible to tell the difference between a um, like a, a utility friendship, like somebody you just maintain contact with because they're useful to you professionally, um, and a true friend. <laughs> like the, the lines between those things in a lot of these types of relationships and politics that we're talking about are so blurred um, that I think they're in a lot of cases really indistinguishable. Because I think essentially you start off with some sort of utility um, that you need from somebody, but you interact a time and time again, and you go to different and then you have drinks and you, you know, pretty soon you're like attending their kid's wedding and whatever. And it just, it develops into friendships. Um, and, and, and so it all gets intertwined in a way that turns out to be meaningful for politics. Mm -hmm. when, it, when it comes to caucuses and, and lobbying um, in terms of like legislators, what has more of an influence in, in their policy decisions? Is it the, the lobbyists themselves? Do they think about the, the constituents when, when, um, when trying to come up with a solution? Um, what would you say? I don't know if you've done any research on it, but what would show more influence on, on legislative policies? So 95% of the time we can explain it with party. So partisanship is so such a strong signal, such a strong indicator of loyalties and teammanship and you know how you play the game. Um, that uh, for the most part, if I want to understand which way somebody's going to vote on an issue, the main thing I want to know is which party are they in, um, and that'll get me there most of the time. Um, so where it gets interesting, and what I think of as sort of the core conundrum that members of Congress get get faced with, is when the party, their party wants them to do one thing and their constituency wants them to do another thing, or they perceive that their constituents want them to do another thing, or maybe they're getting lobbied hard from you know, advocacy, advocacy groups or constituent groups in their district um, that want them to do something other than what the party wants them to do. Um, and so this happens to members of Congress all the time and how they balance that out um, becomes really important, is, is an important part of understanding how Congress works. Because on the one hand, you might say, well, of course, they're going to go with the constituent. That's, you know, who's going to hold them accountable at the next election. Um, that's, you know, that's who they're there for. That's who they're there representing. And so you might say, of course, they go with the constituent. On the other hand, think for a minute of all 435 members of the House 
um, not listening to their party leaders, only doing what their constituent wants, um, and essentially not coordinating, coordinating with one another. They, like, they would never get anything done. They would never get any bills passed, right? Because you require these massive coalitions and this massive coordination of lots of ideas and people in order to make policy. Um, and so political parties are these really useful institutions that help members of Congress solve those collective action dilemmas um, and help them to actually get policy passed. Like your constituents can be demanding stuff of you all the time, but if you can never deliver on it because you're not working with your party, then you're going to lose office anyway. Right. So they have this dilemma. Do I go with my party because I need to be a team player and, you know, get stuff done eventually? Or do I go with my constituency? Um, and I, I think Joe Manchin is a great example of this right now. The, the senator from West Virginia, who's the most conservative Democrat. So Democrats have 50 votes in the Senate. It's this tied Senate, essentially. Um, and Joe Manchin is the most conservative, most moderate um, of the 100 senators. And so basically, if Democrats want to get anything passed, they have to keep Joe Manchin on board. And so Joe Manchin is in this position of, do I do what I think my constituents want me to do, um, which is not necessarily in line with what other Democrats want, um, or do I do what my party wants? So he's in this pivotal, very powerful position where he um, can sort of get the party to do what he wants, because if he holds out, the party's not going to get anything. Um, but at the same time, if he holds out so much or too much, um, then he, and he built sort of resentment among his own party members that could ultimately hurt him down the line as well. So he has to find this very fine balance between advocating for what he thinks his constituent wants, constituents want in order so that he can get reelected next time um, and giving just enough to his co-partisans and to his party leadership um, to, to convince him that he's still on the team, right? Um, and so it's this fine balance that he is, that, that he's walking that I think is really fascinating to watch right now. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think this is going to be our last question for you. So from your research, from, you know, being involved and having relationships with lobbyists and other members of, of our government and our legislation, you know, you know, do you think that bipartisan politics is possible? Do you think it's something that we could ever see in our lifetime of, you know, American politics? So I think this question is actually harder and more complicated than maybe you even intend for it to be. And I say that because, and I'm guilty of this myself, the idea, so on the one hand, we're a two-party system. We're set up that way because of the way our electoral, electoral rules work. And in order to maintain a democracy under this constitution, you really do have to have two functional political parties. And so it seems like um, what we want are two parties who can figure out how to work together and compromise and bargain and take each other with good faith. Um, and, and I think that's right. I think that's, that is the ideal. Unless we change the electoral laws and move to a multi-party system, which I think would be great, but it doesn't seem to be in, in, the, in the near term. Um, but the other part of this is in order for that bipartisan functionality to happen, both parties have to believe in democracy, be willing to follow democratic norms um, and hold democratic values and withhold democratic, you know, withhold up the democratic institutions and act in good faith with one another. And to be perfectly frank, there is a, a strong and growing faction in the Republican Party. And I don't see this as a partisan thing. This is just an observation of the politics right now. But there is a growing faction within the Republican Party that isn't following those things, that doesn't follow the norms. And it leans more authoritarian and doesn't favor democracy and in, in, in all of its tenets. Um, and that's a problem. And some people would argue that when one 
and it's not the whole party, it's a faction of the party, but it might be dominant faction in the party. Um, but if one party isn't being democratic or following democratic ideals, then we don't want bipartisanship <laughs> because we don't, you can't bargain with, democratically bargain with an element that doesn't believe democracy. Um, so I, I think I think those are discussions we need to have. Maybe we shouldn't be aiming for bipartisanship, which has kind of been vexing us for the last couple of decades. Maybe what we need to be doing is figuring out how to get everybody back on board with democracy first, um, and then go for the the bipartisanship. Um, but that's a that's frankly I think a, a much harder nut to crack. Fascinating. Yeah, that that answer is something that we've definitely covered here at WNCT or not answer, but that issue is something that we've kind of covered here. I think even on our one of our podcast yeah. interviews when it comes to the 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 split within the Republican Party and, and how that's going to affect elections and how it even affected um, North Car how it will affect North Carolina's Senate race in 2022. So very fascinating. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. thank you so much for joining us on this edition of What the Politics. And Emily, if you want to wrap us up. So Close us out for sure. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us. And thank you guys for listening or watching with our new video component, another episode of What the Politics. Of course, you can always find us on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. Of course, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thanks so much, guys, and we'll see you next week.